0: Thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash workingovertime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working over Now let's fire up the time machine!
1: Radior Peau de Velour is more than an exquisite night cream. It contains real radium, that wonder element akin to sunlight, which is hailed by science as nature's builder of life. The radium in the cream acts much like a spontaneous, continuous massage. It energizes the cells of the skin so that they throw off impurities. It strengthens the tissues of the skin, making its texture fine, firm, and supple. It stimulates the circulation of the blood through the face, producing that charming glow of delicate color. Radior pote velour makes beauty flower, and it keeps beauty from fading. It's the old, old way, used from the beginning by nature herself, used for years by the fairest women of England, and just recently brought into America. This was the text of an advertisement placed by the Radio Company of London in 1919. Hey time travellers, welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. It's so good to be back in the saddle for season three and on to our second episode already. Now, last week, we basked in the heat of a Greco-Roman vineyard, cheeks aglow with a healthy tipple. This time, we'll take a more clinical approach to getting that glow, grounded in hard science, but bent to the service of a monster of a global marketing campaign. Welcome to the emergent beauty industry of the early 20th century, a veritable Wild West that played fast and loose with the latest scientific darling, a new element called radium which, spoiler alert, exposed users to concerning levels of radiation. Historian Lucy Jane Santos is with us today to dish on how radium became the secret sauce in a dizzying range of beauty and personal care products, and remained so decades after the health hazards were well understood. So, without further ado let's learn all about the killer cosmetics of the early 20th century beauty industry. She holds degrees in Egyptian archaeology, museum management, modern British history, and a diploma in journalism as well. She has appeared on multiple TV and radio outlets with her historical research featured on History Today, BBC History Revealed, The Telegraph, The Scotsman, and The Daily Express. Her book, Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium, examines the fascinating, curious, and sometimes macabre story of radium at the intersection of science and consumerism. And her next book, A History of the Element Uranium, is forthcoming in 2023. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, it's nice to be here. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear more about this topic. I've heard a little bit now and again about things related to radium and its use in consumer products, but um, I'm really looking forward to this deep dive. And it would be great if you could start us off with the 101. Tell us when and where we're talking about, and if there's anything that was going on in the world at the time at large that would be helpful to us in understanding uh, what you're going to be talking about today.
2: So I look at companies that are based in Britain, USA, and France mainly, but these companies also have outlets all over the world. So the companies that I focus on have also uh, got uh, selling in Australia, Egypt and Italy, for instance. So it's it's quite a widespread and I'm really focusing on the twenties and thirties. And here, especially in the beauty industry, we're seeing women's magazines filling with advertisements for face creams and body treatments. Uh, The aim is to be younger, thinner, hair-free and more fragrant. Never selling, heard of
1: that before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they're, they're selling products um, to change the condition of the skin, to slow down the aging process, and really to cover or enhance the skin. In, you know, We're thinking of makeup here, what used to be more cosmetics, but with, we call makeup. Um, and historians and anthropologists really can't agree exactly why the 1920s and 30s sees a massive explosion in this and why adverts for toiletries and cosmetics are are just everywhere all of a sudden. So adverts for toiletries and cosmetics heavily emphasize how those who fail to be youthful fail to be beautiful or to meet the standards of beauty that are being prescribed. You're really risking social stigma or for women, the worst case scenario to remain unmarried. And this was a genuine possibility really given the gender imbalance after so many men had died during the first world war. Lucy, tell us what radium is and
1: what it does to the human body and how it found its way into cosmetics at this time.
2: Radium was discovered by Marie Curie um, in 1898. And she'd identified two new materials, one which she named polonium and one which was named radium. And these are new elements. Without going hugely into science, um, because I want to talk more about cosmetics than science, There'd been, a, for a long time, an understanding that elements were finite, you, they couldn't change, and these new elements that Marie Curie had discovered, and added to um, also um, uranium, thorium, actinium, which were elements that were already known but not understood, they found that these elements behaved differently from any other element that had been found before. So instead of being stable, they were capable of change, and they spontaneously turned into something else, into a different substance without any outside intervention. And as they did that, they emitted distinct types of rays, um, which we all probably know the names of, alpha rays, beta rays, gamma rays. So there's a huge excitement here in science that something new has been discovered, something untested, and. Un- unknown and there was a search for trying to work out what could be done with these elements so how they could the powers of them could be harnessed so almost straight away you start getting them being used in hospitals because these early researchers found that if you put these radium salts on your skin they burnt away the skin so they were used uh, to burn away tumors because at this time the only real treatments for cancer was to sort of cut out the tumor so they started to burn away the unhealthy skin and the theory was that healthy skin would grow un- grow underneath cancer's cured how wonderful is that so that's happening in hospitals and that's called uh, radium therapy or curie therapy Now, on the other end of the scale, there's something called mild radium therapy. And this is how it starts getting into cosmetics. Mild radium therapy is gentle. You're not burning away your skin, but you are utilizing the rays of radioactivity, of of radium and specifically. And this is linked to the idea of, um, that if something is noxic, a toxic agent in a in large, if you have a lot of it, it's uh, toxic. But if you use a very, very small amount of this, then it's actually going to be beneficial. So the idea here is that exposure to very small doses of radium, which is usually uh, radium water um, or by breathing in the gases of radium. So as radium changes into its daughter element, into the next element in the chain, it produces a gas, radon gas. The idea that if you breathed in radon gas or infused it with your water, this is going to cause a small amount of stress um, to your your organism. And this is going to stimulate your metabolism. This is going to be a catalyst. Um, So that's how it starts getting into um, cosmetics. The idea that you could stimulate hair follicles or use it to revitalize the skin, uh, almost reversing the aging process. Because obviously aging is basically your cells dying. So if you could put a little bit of radium in your body in some way, it would revitalize these cells. And that's a brilliant thing for the beauty industry. It is. And, and listening to you say all of that, I hear these
1: phrases regularly today to describe different um, materials that are incorporated into beauty treatments or you know processes that are used in high-end
2: spas right absolutely and it's not new um i mean it's not even new in the 20s and 30s because if you think about it uh, we all can we all know the stories of lead being used in beauty products or mercury and, and arsenic as well and they're all sort of the same principle i mean arsenic was used as uh, a A hundred years before radium had even been thought of, arsenic was being used in the same way to try and burn off tumors and then would be used as well to beautify people. So you've got this idea that toxic elements, metallic elements, are good for you in small doses. And radium is just continuing on from a longer tradition. Oh, that's really fascinating.
1: And so the types of beauty products and cosmetics that we're talking about in this time period did they exist already in the market? And this was just the latest, greatest new ingredient to supercharge them? Or did this discovery give birth to a whole new array
2: of products that were made available to consumers? These were all products that had were already in existence. So the products we're thinking about here are face powders, skin creams, so day and night creams, lipsticks, hair tonics, shampoos, um, you know not these aren't new things but what is new is that the cosmetic industry is growing at this time so i said earlier that there is a pressure on women especially in the 20s and 30s But we've also got this industry that is growing up alongside of it and again whether whether the industry is growing because the pressures are going or whether the, the industry is driving the pressures is much debated So what differentiated is that the beauty industry needed a voice of authority. So the beauty industry had been associated with quacks, with fraudulent products, with dangerous products, which is ironic when we're thinking about how the beauty industry championed radium. But they had been associated with bad practices before. So they needed to come out of that and um, they needed a voice to to say, a voice of authority to say... um, we are a serious business, you can trust us. And they chose science. And this again is where radium comes in, because Marie Curie's lab was the hub of scientific practice at the time, it was a Nobel Prize winning lab. And radium was this really exciting substance. And they looked towards radium to say that they had links with modernity with science, and that they could be trusted. And then not just it's also worth thinking about that it's not just companies that utilize radium that are doing this people like helena rubenstein so she never used radium as far as i'm aware in her products but what she did do is uh align her company with science so she described herself as a beauty scientist or a cosmetic scientist she wore white lab coats in her pictures and Uh, if you see early uh, photographs of Helena Rubinstein, she's always surrounded by test tubes and bottles she is a scientist and she claimed that she studied medicine Uh, she has chemists and doctors on her staff and she even calls the people that come to her beauty salons patients and she calls those operating rooms so you can see how science is being co-opted into the beauty industry and obviously beauty is science because you need a huge amount of knowledge to produce these products but radium fits into this and again whether it's radium driving it or whether the beauty industry is driving it's just fascinating to see how it was just plopped in there in in a growing industry. Yeah that's really
1: interesting because I I do feel like um, again just to to bring us Quickly back to the modern age and, and recent decades, you know, there's been um, a pendulum swinging back and forth, you know, and I, I think there's kind of the, the, the luxury angle of beauty products and also the more medical, scientifically proven side. And yeah, there's definitely been plenty of um, peddlers <laughs> depicted wearing their lab coats, but I had no idea it went back that far. That's fascinating uh, with Helena Rubenstein.
2: Yeah, she starts um, from around about 1914, I think they start doing this, this, this co-opting of science. And it's absolutely fascinating.
1: Oh, it is. And so tell me, um, Lucy, how were these products delivered to the end consumer? Um, you've mentioned a range of items that people used, but How did they acquire these products were they sold at retail did they go and have professional treatments or yeah tell us a little bit about all the ways people could um, come into contact with this stuff
2: any way that you can think of really i mean um so most of these companies would sell via mail order so there would be adverts in magazines and i had a great time in the archives looking at old copies of vogue magazine for instance from 19 19- oh, <laughs> it's full of adverts for radium products um so you could go to any magazine and find a a, a radium product and 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 buy it uh, via mail order they were obviously in shops as well so i found these products um on sale in harrods selfridges army and navy stores and boots army stores. and navy stores really <laughs> absolutely everywhere and i mean specifically i'm talking uh, britain here actually but um you, in in the US as well, pretty much any big chain store you can think about, any department store would have stocked these products. Um, And the Boots the Chemist one is really interesting. And I did go to the archives of uh, Boots the Chemist, which are in Nottingham a couple of years ago and found a huge amount of products containing radium. It was uh, mentioned in their catalogues and in their staff magazines. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating. And then they were also available in beauty salons as well. So um, there's quite a few different products that was which were on sale to take uh, for home use as well. But you could go into a salon and have a specific treatment as well. And again, widely advertised in the magazines um, of the day as well. So it's it's really radium is everywhere at this point, and it's not hard to to find and it. It's not hard to get a treatment or to buy at all.
1: So I got to ask the million dollar question. From what you've been able to determine at the time they were doing it, were these manufacturers, retailers, and service providers aware that they were selling toxic products?
2: I haven't actually found any reference to people talking about it, but I can't see how they wouldn't have been aware. I mean, pretty much since radium was first discovered, its front page, there was this sort of idea that although they knew radium was dangerous, that was in the wrong hands. If it was in the right hands and it was uh, taken seriously, then it wasn't dangerous. It was toxic, we know that they knew it was toxic because that's the the attribute that they're actively utilizing. But that's short-term, they didn't think about the long-term damage that it could cause because really nobody knew the long-term damage at the time because you don't know long-term damage until the time has passed and you can look back but there is also this idea that they're doing it safely and if they're doing it safely their, their customers are safe as well and you can see that constantly throughout um, the history of these products and this isn't a short-term thing I said that uh, I mostly focus on the 20s and 30s, but these products are still on sale in the 40s and 50s and even the 60s as well. So it's a really, uh, they're on sale for a long time. And obviously by the 60s, people can look back on the 20s and see the long-term damage. Um, And you can see the companies responding to um, concerns around radium as well. So again, you know that they're paying attention. So when, There's a big case in in 1932, for instance, where somebody dies because they've drunk too much of this product called Radithor, which is a radium water. And this is radium salts dissolved in water. And he drank tons of it and died a horrible death. And it was massive in the newspapers because he was also a sort of playboy millionaire. He was a well-known person. So he dies, it's reported on, Um, And you'd have thought that that would probably kill off the industry, but it doesn't. And you can see people talking about, so they say things like, well, that company, they just went a bit crazy. They had too much product, you know, too much radium. We don't do that. Ours is in small amounts. Ours is safe. You can trust us. And instead of destroying the industry, his death actually revitalizes it a little bit because people are, are saying our product is fine.
1: Oh my gosh! There's so much there. It's almost difficult to think about unpacking it. Uh, I mean, the first image I kind of had in my mind um, was, uh, you know, I, I I love this position of well, it is dangerous. We know if mishandled, but we've got top men working on it. You know, just to sort of reference Indiana Jones, um, yeah. that that pop culture, just this idea that well. Just so long as you've got the right people in control, it's going to stay in control. And you can just sort of imagine the end of the line of of all these people in the public eye um, and working to convince the consumer public that this is safe. And it just keeps getting kicked up the line. Well, so-and-so told me that their lab is the top notch. Yes. Well, we got our knowledge from X and it comes straight from the Marie Curie laboratories and, and so on. And I just sort of have to wonder if there wasn't someone somewhere thinking, hmm, I wonder, (laughs) this is such a slippery slope. When is it uh, just a little bit too much to be safe?
2: Um, well, again, I don't think anyone really knew at that point. Um, and it's one of my favorite companies is a French company called Tho Radia. And they launched in March 1933. So this is, uh, you know, I spoke about even Byers, this man who dies from drinking too much radium water. This is all happening around the same time. And this company launches a product, uh, which is called Thoradia, the brand is called Thoradia and their products are Thoradia and the Thoradia is thorium and radium and they're so proudly, on all of their adverts they say this is made from thorium, this is made from radium. And Not only that but they say that the formula has been devised by a Dr Alfred Curie. So they're using the name Curie oh, and he's tricky. known... Yeah, he's no relation. <clears throat> uh, that's been proven, No, he's no relation. He's French, he's based in Paris, no relation, just happens to have this name. No huge, ba- he is genuinely a doctor. There's no huge, any evidence that he's done anything to do with radioactivity prior to this. So they are using his name, but I just find it fascinating that around about a time when the understanding of the damage that radium can do, a really high profile death, Marie Curie dies the following year um, from exposure to to radioactivity
1: yeah and that was that was understood
2: wasn't it yeah by this point people knew uh, they knew that radium was dangerous they knew that Marie Curie was suffering I think at this point she's blind she's uh, or if not blind she's really lost most of her vision she's very frail she's been publicly seen to be frail um and people knew what was happening um but again, this company launches this product and it's saying we are using radium in a safe way to make you beautiful. And the, the company is huge. Uh, they, they make a fortune from selling this product. And again, it, it's mostly in Paris. They look at launching in London, but it doesn't work out for them. It's available in Egypt and Portugal and Italy and Poland. Yeah, it's 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 a massive Company launching something at a time when you would have thought the industry would be dead, but it just comes back again. It's it's absolutely fascinating.
1: So, Lucy, let's talk a little bit about the people who actually worked in this toxic cosmetics industry. You know what were their jobs like? And uh, you know, obviously, one of my first questions is, you know, were they in direct danger working with these materials? Um, at whatever point they were involved along this supply chain.
2: I mean, when you think about it, there is there must have been absolutely hundreds of people involved. So you've got at the top level, you've got the owners of these companies. You've got the people that are sourcing the material. So somebody's buying the radium, aren't they? I mean, there isn't uh, just yeah. Do nice you
1: stick stuff. it in a tote bag, go to the market and yeah. get it? I mean, yeah. How does one how does one yeah. source radium I mean, <laughs> in a
2: product? <laughs> We know that some of these products, uh, there's there's waste material. So uh, serious radium businesses, uh, you know, like uh, the military, there is waste products. So people are buying radioactive rubble, essentially waste material. So we, we know a little bit about where they possibly got the radium from. And I mean, I'll come. I'll probably come back to the factory workers a little later. But the the people I'm really interested in are the people who are selling it. Um, and you wouldn't really think of them as radium workers. So when you think about radium workers, you may think about Marie Curie, you may think about the people who painted watch faces in factories but there's all these other people as well so um, I'm fascinated and I know nothing about them but there's two people one's called Mrs Fletcher and one is called Miss Williams and they are representatives of a company called Radium Vita. Radium Vita makes night creams, uh, rouge, lipsticks and face powders but Mrs. Fletcher and Miss Williams' job was to go around the big department stores um, in Scotland, in this case, and go and talk to the customers. So they're the people that, when you walk into the cosmetic, uh, Hall of a department store are the people that spray the perfume at you. I was,
1: gonna, I was just going to say, I can't stand those ladies, okay? Well, what were they were they extending a, a finger full of irradiated cream as you walked by, Mrs. Fletcher and Miss Williams? <laughs> I
2: guess so. I mean, it's, it's a thankless job at the best of times. Oh, and it sure you can is. See, we mostly know about these people from adverts, actually, because these companies are placing adverts in the local papers saying, Uh, In this case, Mrs. Fletcher is going to be available at this shop and I think it's in Aberdeen. I think her turf was Aberdeen, but Mrs. Fletcher is going to be here on Thursday if you want to speak to her about radium creams and she offered consultations as well. So we can see tiny, tiny, tiny little insights into this world. And I love it when they're actually named um, because otherwise the name's gonna be lost lost in history. So this is someone who is working in the radium industry in a way that I would never have thought of as being possible. People are making appointments. They want, you know, Radium Vita launches their new uh, Rouge. So they, I, oh, 1930 something they all they have a new new shade of rouge that they're very proud of and mrs fletcher is going to come and talk to you and see whether it suits your skin tones so it's not oh, and it's i love it yeah and it's not <laughs> just about whether the radium is going to work for you it is whether this product is going to suit your skin tones because they also sell it as being quality lipsticks or quality rouge it's not just about the ingredients the the product is quality it is going to improve your appearance um, not just because of the radium but because uh, they use the finest of ingredients so this this doesn't change whether it's radium or a, a more modern equivalent you know it is the quality of the product that they are selling um, but I, I love the idea of popping into a department store meeting Mrs Fletcher and talking about your radioactivity for the day
1: Oh, no kidding. And, and you can get it in, in a color to, to suit your skin tone as well. Um, that's phenomenal. I mean, you have to wonder whether these individuals who were very actively peddling this stuff suffered adversely i'm I'm certain that wouldn't be appearing in any of the adverts please come and pay your respects she's really ill and (laughs) this might be her last appearance but uh, i wonder if you were able to to dig up any any dirt about that sort of occurrence
2: the amount of radium that's going to be in a radium lipstick would be very very small the amount that you would have to put on your lips (laughs) i don't know you'd be painting it every 10 seconds (laughs) For eternity. So I don't think that it would have adversely affected those people but also if it had it would have been 30 years later that they'd have discovered it and again how could you really track back I mean Mrs. have worked for Radium Vita for six months in 1934 in 1960 if she presents with a, a tumour let's say can you track back like that I'm, I'm not sure you can I mean a lot of these work was transitory as well, so um, I have a company uh, called Radior and again, they're making lipsticks and powders and and things like that. They start off in the UK and in 1918, they decide that they want to open a branch in New York because they've done so well. They have made so much money that they want to take on a bigger market and they start advertising in, um, I believe it's the New York Times And they're looking for factory workers. So there's a great advert uh, saying, uh, girls wanted, inexperienced, light, easy work for young girls, steady all year round positions. And so we start seeing that these these companies are advertising for staff, but again, we can't track back anything. We can't find out who worked for them. Uh, How long they worked, what exactly they were doing. But we've got these tantalizing glances, glimpses into into this world. Uh, Radio also advertising for salesmen. Um, So they say, we have a big new idea backed by big advertising. And again, this is in the New York Times. But it probably is quite transient work. Yeah, they, they talk about how the factory workers is all year round, but actually the company only, only is in existence in the US for two years before it all goes terribly wrong for them, actually. So yeah, they're, they're, these women aren't working in it long enough, and they'll probably go off to another factory, probably not another radium lipstick factory. So it would have been a very small amount of time that they were working for this, this company. Yeah, well,
1: that makes sense, given the nature of that work. And Yet having this conversation, it it brings to mind, you know, I I think one of the better known groups of individuals who were caught up in working with toxic irradiated materials, and that's the so-called radium girls. You you did mention painting watch faces, Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that group. I mean, that's a group that that there is an identified uh, number of individuals, if I'm Correct.
2: The Radium Girls is a term that was used by the press and it was initially used to describe a few women who had been in the employment of a company called the U.S. Radium Corporation. And so this is is in America. So they've been hired to apply luminous paint onto objects. Um, And the idea obviously is to make these objects glow in the dark. Now radium is ideally suited for this because radium salts, for instance, Um, actually do glow in the dark on their own. It's to do with the radiation and it's agitating the nitrogen that's naturally present in the air. So you get a tiny little buzz of energy that is a very faint glow. And this was, Marie Curie observed this almost as soon as radium had been discovered. But by about 1902, they'd worked out that if you put a little bit of sticky substance on radium salts, um, you could paint it. By 1914 uh, a company had come up with with a way of sort of mass producing glow-in-the-dark products and it becomes really really important because we've got the first world war so it's in America but also in Britain as well so the idea that you could have something that glowed in the dark that didn't need to be charged up you know some glow-in-the-dark products if you uh, expose it to light that's going to make it glow in the dark the radium products radium paint was just naturally glowing in the dark so you start getting glow in the dark watches which is brilliant for people uh, and especially soldiers in the first world war you're in a trench you want to see what time it is you're not going to light a match because you're possibly are going to get shot if you do but you can look at your watch that's got a tiny glow in the dark so the idea that uh, Watches Glow in the Dark was a massive industry. So these companies needed people to paint the watches and they hired women and they hired young women to do so. Um, and they were working five and a half days a week uh, typically painting about 250 watch faces per day. And they got $20 a week, which is pretty good money. And it was actually a very coveted job at the time. It was a nice clean factory. Um, I've seen pictures of them. They all sit around a big table uh, or lots of little tables next to each other, painting this, these watches. You know, it's, it's good work for them. And it's a, it's a very desirable job. Now the reason they're called the radium girls is not a nice one the reason they called the radium girls is because um, they started dying and um, initially the companies tried to blame the women themselves so they said uh, the first the first woman that died was accused so not right, right. the first woman that died was um, it was initially said that she died of syphilis um, But then more and more of the sort of team started dying or getting very, very sick. And the companies were casting around for other ideas about why these women were dying that couldn't possibly be because they were working with radium. Absolutely not. Even though at this point they were the other people that worked in the factories, the scientists, were protecting themselves from from the radium, they all started um, having shields and wearing. Big thick leather gloves and things like that. The scientists um, and the important men in the business were all protecting themselves, but the women who were doing the painting had no protections whatsoever. And again,
1: even worse, were they not asked to sharpen the brushes with their lips? I've seen the play, so I what I know about the Radium Girls may be partly fictionalized, but that really was a striking image of how that's how their in- ingestion of this stuff was, was literal
2: yes absolutely some f- especially in uh, in north america the tradition was that when you painted you pointed so it's called lip pointing so you take your uh, paintbrush, you place it between your lips and make it into a fine point because the finer the point you have on the brush, the less mistakes you make, the quicker you can do it. And they were essentially being paid per watch. So it was in their interests to get it right first time and to do as many as they can. So they were encouraged by the company and also amongst themselves as well to point the paintbrushes just to get things done quicker and it was known at the time that ingesting radium wasn't particularly good and as I said the scientists and the other people in in the business were protecting themselves but these girls were sort of left to it um, which is a massive tragedy obviously and yes there's lots of them that uh, started getting sick People started dying and they eventually took, uh, a group of them, the original Radium Girls, took a lawsuit out against the company, uh, U.S. Radium Corporation, because they wanted to, a, draw attention to the terrible things that were happening to them, but also they wanted the companies to accept that it was their responsibility not and not place the blame on the girls. The company made a big deal about how they were such good employers, because they were hiring people that were weak, you know, women, they were hiring <laughs> women um, as well. So how could they be blamed if people started dying? They were doing a nice thing in the first place.
1: Wow. Gaslighting. It's yeah. real.
2: Absolutely.
1: Let's talk a little bit about how retailers who are involved in these products that are enhanced scientifically, you know, with at times potentially questionable substances such as radium, you know, h- how differently do you feel they operate today?
2: Or do you? <laughs> I think about this a lot. And I, I just keep thinking about how much trust we place in the companies that we purchase products from and how much trust we put in place that the laws that have been made around these are actually for our protection and not the protections of the companies i mean just on my desk now i've got some hand cream um and it's just neutrogena hand cream and i'm looking at the ingredients i've got no idea what any of them are i mean i just yeah they're um, not
1: readable yeah
2: no um and i i'm not going to go a, We've got all the technology in the world. I could go away and uh, look at them and look them up and find out what's good for me and what's not, but I don't, and I don't think anyone does. We just trust that um, everything is fine. Um, and occasionally we we get some glimpses. I mean, I I can't remember what year it is, but I do know that some lipsticks were tested. A big range of lipsticks were tested a few years back, and they found that they all had very, very small amounts, trace amounts of lead in them. But because lead isn't considered, I don't know, toxic enough or important enough, it was at a level that it, it didn't need to be declared. So the company just kept up, put, keeps putting it in. We're all ingesting lead every time we would use the lipsticks, but, you know. Yeah,
1: right. I, I Well, and, and, and I'm thinking too of the periodic news about the health risks of your typical antiperspirant deodorant Mm -hmm. that people are using yeah right um and yet that's a booming market far as i can see (laughs) right (laughs) and we all just you know continue on as opposed to be to to being a pariah in the tube in the subway
2: yeah absolutely and i you know i've recently changed to a, a more natural um deodorant antiperspirant deodorant because i don't know what's in in the other ones but I I didn't spend much time actually investigating what's in the new one they just said it's natural it's safe it's fine and again it's it's the same thing that we talked about earlier it's a company saying you can trust us you can't trust those other ones but you can trust us (laughs) exactly we are the correct
1: hands we are the responsible knowledgeable hands
2: (laughs) yeah and and also I mean one thing to also think about with going back to the idea of radium is that one of the arguments for the use of radium was that it was a natural product because radium is it, it exists in nature yeah it's not, right so they there's some of these companies were saying you can trust us because radium is nature it's mother nature helping us to help you be beautiful so although there's a lot of emphasis on just a scientific innovation there's also this parallel of it's mother nature, it's it's natural, it's found in the mountains. Um, there's a lovely company that has radiant water and mountain herbs, and that's their product, and that's going to stimulate your hair. So they're saying on one hand, science, but on the other hand, nature. But it's all about our product is better than that product. You can trust us, and we're still doing the same today.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right that we all actually have in our pockets, a computer powerful enough to look up and at least try to understand every single ingredient in any sort of personal care product that we choose to apply to our bodies. But, you know, I feel like every single day these days, it's information overload. It's like you just, that's one of those things. And one would think that it would actually be a top priority, but it's just not in the information overload basket that kind of goes
2: in the bottom weirdly it would take so much mental effort to to go through everything that you use everything that you're exposed to on a daily basis again i i i I think there is another parallel with the 20s and 30s when you you've got this explosion of of the cosmetic industry specifically you've got explosion of adverts magazines you start getting films and all of these things that are uh, swirling around, it is information overload. And again, the messages that get, that, come, that get cut, the messages that cut through are the ones that are the loudest really. And with radium, radium is the, one of the loudest voices at the time. It is every time Marie Curie does a, a, a tour of America, all the beauty companies are able to say, well, she's well-respected. She likes radium. Use our products. Yeah, you know, Radium is a superstar at the time. So it really helps these, these industries because there's, there's something in the newspaper, something happening that they can point to.
1: Yeah, it's really sobering actually. And and I think that we are very much subject now to the loudest voices. And it's it's an absolute cacophony. <laughs> so I, I think that the overload is something that is entirely natural in the bombardment of messaging from so many more platforms than we even had in the 20s and the 30s, with this, this burgeoning of consumer advertising you know, we're so surrounded by it now, I I feel like in some respects, we don't even recognize it as such as a consumer message.
2: Advertising surrounds us all. And we get so many messages at all times, it is really hard to decode them sometimes. Even if you spend like I do a lot of time trying to analyze adverts. I mean, sometimes you you fall for things that don't even look like adverts.
1: Well, because it all appeals to identity, doesn't it? Personal identity, individual identity, group belonging, uh, you know, on this really primal, tribal, cultural level.
2: Yes, and, and again, going back to radium, it's the same thing. Do you identify as a modern woman? Again, in the 1920s and 30s, to be a modern woman was really important. And Radium fed into that because you every day, every time you applied that lipstick, you're reaffirming your modernity, your scientific innovation, being part of something bigger than yourself. And and cosmetics are not a, it's not a lone application of lipstick or uh, powders on your own in your house. It's being part of something bigger than that. And again, it's really tapping into that and advertisers are so good at, at doing that.
1: Oh, they are. And, you know, I just feel like in in the modern day, particularly, and I'm sure it was the same then, but this is just what I observe living today, that it's, it's all about, you know, are you going to stay relevant as a woman in modern society with its youth fixation? You know, it really has this rather dire cast to it.
2: Yes. And and again, that's not, that's not changed. Um, The idea that you have to remain relevant, that you have to Be something slightly bigger than yourself is all the way through uh, makeup history, or specifically advertising of makeup as well.
1: Well, this is all such fascinating um, stuff that that you're focusing so much of your time and attention on. And I'd, I'd love to turn a little bit more to your your work personally, Lucy. You know, what is it that you enjoy most about the work that you do and the topics that you study?
2: I think the thing that I like the most, actually, is I'm not saying that it's underexplored because there's lots of people writing about makeup history. But I think there's little depths. I think we can dig down a little further. And I think we do focus on adverts and the companies. But what I really like to do is think about the people that used the products and the people that sold them as well. So it's the personal and the individual stories, which I think often are missing in 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 the beauty history, especially of the 20th century, we focus on, let's say, um, Elizabeth Arden. The history of Elizabeth Arden, the company, the the marketing, the. The changes that the innovation she made in advertising, for instance, Um, there's a lot of business history, but I like the idea of people, how do they feel when they walked through that the famous red door of of an Elizabeth Arden salon, or how did the person feel at home putting on uh, Elizabeth Arden um, I think she had an, a, a product called orange skin food in the in the nineteen thirties. It just sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> I, I love the idea of thinking about people using these products, and I, I actually, I, I said that the orange skin food sounds delicious. I do have a pot of it, and it's full, but it's obviously gone rancid over the over the hundred years since it's been produced. So I I, I can't smell it, but you know that's another thing that I love is. This is make me make me sound slightly weird, but I love smelling the products. It just. That's
1: not weird. That's so much of the appeal of it. I instantly respond to anything cosmetic that smells like rose or lavender, you know, I mean, and I, I, that's by design, right? I have a very strong mental association because I don't actually love the smell of roses normally, but I like anything I put on my skin that smells like it. That's
2: conditioning
1: and that's coming from outside of me. (laughs)
2: yeah <laughs> it's it i mean products are gorgeous these beauty products are lovely i'm sure they smelt delicious not so much anymore um when the products come to me i mean i've got a whole box full this is going to make me sound weird i've got a whole box full of really old dirty where do you
1: get all this stuff i love no i'm an archaeologist i love it it's it's cosmetic archaeology
2: well, my uh, my background is archaeology, and I I do think that influences me because I, I when I was an archaeologist, I I worked a lot more in museums, so I liked the objects, uh, not so much the digging. I don't like to be uncomfortable, but I I quite liked being <laughs> at the end of a dig and everything was nice and tidy. And a lot of these products do actually turn up in in archaeology. I mean, um, you've you've got uh, oh yeah domestic. Uh, uh, rubbish dumps in, in people's houses. I mean, I've been sent bo- bottles that quite clearly have been buried because they are full of rubbish and um, full of uh, dirt as well. So these are being chucked out, buried, and then someone's dug them up and they find me and send them to me because nobody wants a radium a bottle of shampoo do they <laughs> get that well, out you
1: do house. thank goodness someone knows that you do well i love the idea that you you actually collect the artifacts of this industry as well no this makes perfect sense
2: to me i i'm sure i would do the same thing um you, you, you don't know something until you hold it do you i mean it, it no. it's a wonderful thing to be able to hold it to be able to open um i'm just looking at my desk now i've got a a a cardboard box of a faux radio powder, which I know is from 1930. I didn't know until I'd opened it up that it had a little leaflet inside of it. Um, I didn't know how the the actual uh, carton that it came, the powder comes in was constructed, that it had a seal over it, you know, it's all of those things. You've got to be able to handle them to, to really understand the product. and. It's important with makeup because makeup is luxurious. So we can see that these companies are putting a lot of thought and attention into the product itself because it's a luxury item. It's to be displayed on a, on a vanity table. Yeah, it's bought in Selfridges and Harrods high-end products. So you've got to actually handle to really understand them.
1: Oh yeah, and that, that hasn't changed one bit today. Absolutely. What's one thing you've learned in your work that might surprise our listeners.
2: Specifically to do with products, So some of these products not only lasted for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, but some of them are actually still with us today in, in slightly different um, a slightly different version of it. So although I talk a lot about radium in, in cosmetics, I also look at radium in spa treatments. So you know, water treatments, health treatments water for rheumatism in places like Bath and Buxton. So Buxton uh, was a massive spa spa town. You could go there, you could go to the natural baths, be treated for rheumatism. You could go to the pump room, which reopened uh, about two years ago after a big renovation product and you would go in there and you would drink water now the thing was is that in the 1920s they was really emphasizing the fact that their waters were radioactive so they had been tested by scientists and they'd found that they contained Radium, essentially. So the waters were radioactive, and they would bottle these waters, and you could drink on site, or you could take them home. You could buy these waters in pharmacies and and in shops. But it's the same company that sells Buxton mineral waters today. Oh, wow, you, <laughs> I recognize you? that name. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a it's a mega mega company. Yeah, it, I mean
1: that's like that's like Poland Springs back in the United yeah. States.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's huge, and you know you can. In normal times, you can walk into W.H. Smith's on, uh, on, the way to a tra- on the way to your train to go to a meeting and you'll be given a bottle of Buxton Mineral Water with your newspaper or newspaper with your water. Um, but it's the same company and they actually uh, use the same water source as they did in the thirties. And the thing I, I found an advert, um, I think it was 1934 and it said Buxton Mineral Water British water for a British whiskey, so they're selling radioactive <sighs> as a mixer for whiskey. <laughs> I love it, absolutely love it. And you know, I actually found out that until the 1980s, Buxton Mineral Water Company was still trading on it on the radioactivity of its of its products. So I found an advert from I think it was 1984, and they were still saying our waters are radioactive. It is healthy for you. But I'm sure if you mentioned it to them today, they would Oh, no, they've never... No, 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 that was never... That was an yeah. additive,
1: and we no yeah. longer add it. Well, yeah, although oh, well, we got the measurements
2: wrong or something, something, you know, something had gone wrong. But, you know, until the 1980s, companies are still promoting themselves as radioactive. And it is a hell of a lot later than I ever thought. And really, they stopped doing it about 1986, which is Chernobyl. <laughs> so... Uh, It took something massive like that for companies to stop emphasizing their radioactivity, and I just find that fascinating. That is unbelievable, actually. It did shock me Um, when I went to I went to the archives in Buxton a couple of years back and found this advert clearly dated in the eighties. oh my god, (laughs) my last time.
1: (sighs) You have to wonder if it hadn't been for Chernobyl. Hmm. Well, anyway. let's let's hope and do you have any other unanswered questions that you're you know hot on the trail of right now other than the the sort of individual stories which which i I love the way you you put that you know about these individuals who who use these products who sold these products
2: i've actually been working on a a project um to identify some dancers um so There was a uh, a dancer in the 1890s, a really famous dancer, her name's Loie Fuller. She was absolutely one of the most famous women of her day, incredibly well-respected, was doing innovative dance techniques and um, was utilizing science in her dance in in a way that nobody had done. She was using electricity and filters to bring different lights to her dance and she got really interested in the idea of making glow-in-the-dark costumes and she tried various phosphorescent salts but when she found out about radium she was absolutely convinced that this was the thing for her and she actually set up a lab but she had a group of dancers um, which she used in her performance but when they weren't performing she used them as lab assistants and I'm absolutely Desperate to try and track down their names because they're not often actually individually named but find out what happened to them because there's some indication that when they were older. Their work with in the lab and they're dancing with these dangerous chemicals on their clothes really you know really close to their faces and on their bodies actually um, caused them to become ill. In older age, I want to find out more about these people who worked with radium in really unexpected ways.
1: Oh, it sounds like we are going to continue to uncover more and more of these examples
2: with the help of sleuths such as yourself. I really hope so. I think there is a there's a huge history of women in science that is outside of traditional labs or uh, you know in, in in these unexpected places. People were innovating. Loewy Fuller's team were innovating for the theater Um, other other ones that I look at are innovating for the beauty industry it's not strict it's not pure science as it were Um, but I I think there's a huge story and I think it's really interesting
1: yeah well thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and your passion for this topic with us absolutely delighted to Next time you're smearing on that hot, new retinol and turmeric serum, spare a minute to glance at the ingredients, maybe. Now, I'm not suggesting you try to understand it, I mean, who can even read the ingredients in your typical consumer product these days, much less know what they are? And that prompts a series of uncomfortable questions. What is the stuff you're putting on your face and body every day, anyway? How about your shampoo? And that vitamin elixir you're downing, based on five-star reviews by 10,000 equally clueless consumers. Not to be alarmist, but I think Lucy's work should compel us to consider a bit more closely what it is that we put on and into our bodies, along with the trust that we place in the companies peddling these products to us in increasingly distracted market. While we have the means to research anything we like, arguably more easily than ever before, who's got the time with all the information we allow to bombard us 24-7? And to come clean, I say that as one of the biggest health and beauty product junkies around. Honestly, every time I walk into my bathroom, it occurs to me that I have a problem no doubt fueled at least in part by the same old promises of beauty, health, modernity, and relevancy that early 20th century advertisements made, and whose legacy is clear today in the aisles of your favorite pharmacy and at department store beauty counters everywhere. Thanks as always for listening, and hope to see you again next week.
0: Hey there, you can follow today's guest at Lucy Jane Santos on Twitter. Check out her fascinating book, Half-Lives, The Unlikely Story of Radium, available on Amazon and other retailers. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. And if you like the pod, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. We're so happy to have the time machine fired up again. We have a slew of riveting new episodes coming on this season, so keep a lookout every other week. Until next time. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law-Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.